Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy, and thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can enjoy fellowship with one another, which is awesome, but particularly with you, which is amazing. And so, Lord, we just count it a privilege to sit at your feet, and we'd love to just hear from your heart today. So, Lord, please speak to our heart. And guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn to Ezekiel chapter 8. Lord willing, we'll read chapter 8 through 10 today. Don't be alarmed. Yes, that's three chapters I can count. Uh, but chapter 10, we're just going to read very briefly. Because it's, it's, yeah. All right. Ezekiel. Chapter 8. So the overview is that uh, Ezekiel is a man, he's a prophet of God um, around uh, late 500s BC, and well, early 500s BC, 590s BC, because you count backwards. Um, and uh, he's in Babylon because Babylon has uh, at least partly conquered the Jewish people in the nation of Judah and specifically the city of Jerusalem. They've yet to completely conquer, uh, but Ezekiel is in, is in the midst of those Babylonian captives to sort of let them know that Babylon is actually going to continue to administer uh, judgment. It's going to be the judgment from God as a result of their, uh, of their sin. And so... Uh, just to bring us up to where we've been so far, chapters 1 through 3, Ezekiel is called by God to preach to the captives. Chapter 4 and 5, God gave Ezekiel some kind of action sermons. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, I refer you back to that. And then last week, chapter 6 and 7, God tells why the judgment is coming. And it was because of their spiritual adultery. And throughout the Old Testament, and even and into the New Testament as well, there's sort of this metaphor that runs as a bit of a subplot, if you will, that um, the metaphor is, is God is like a husband and, and the Jewish people were like uh, his, his wife. And that carries on, we know, in the, in the New Testament, in Ephesians particularly, there's a whole teaching there on the analogy between the, the, the human husband and wife and God, uh, the Father, with the bride of Christ being the church. And, um, and so, you know, if, you've, if you're married or if you've been married or if you uh, have been around somebody that was married, uh, you understand that it's a relationship, right? I don't um, give offerings to my wife, right? We have a relationship, right? Or not, not burnt offerings or like, I guess I do. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know what I mean, right? I don't, I don't, uh, it's a relationship. Maybe I should just stop there. I mean, I should totally stop there. We should all just go have lunch. <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, but, it's, but, but the highlight verse, really, if you would, from last week was in this last part of uh, chapter 6, verse 9. God is explaining why, why we're having a problem here with the Jewish people. And he says, I was crushed by their adulterous heart, which has departed from me. Imagine that for a second. First of all, you know, adultery is super difficult topic to talk about. But just imagine the gravity of the pain of that. And imagine that we're talking about God. That God, you know, relationships by definition, if they're healthy are an extension of vulnerability, right? You, you make yourself vulnerable to a person, and over time, Lord willing, there's enough reciprocation, enough um, loyalty, enough love, enough respect, enough of all of that, that vulnerability no longer feels vulnerable. Is that fair? 
you know, I mean, we've been married 30, 4 years, right? And it doesn't really feel like a lot of vulnerability, right? As much as it did back in the day. And so with God, it's like if your heart is crushed by that adulterous spouse, it's because there's this vulnerability that God has, has granted to his people. It's amazing that God would make himself vulnerable emotionally to his people, that he could describe that he was crushed by their adulterous hearts. Just get your head around that, the heart of God. He's not like up in heaven waiting to spank us. He's not like, you know, just setting some cosmic world in order without emotion. He didn't kickstart the evolutionary process and say, you're on your own, right? He is engaged in his people very intimately in a way that we see throughout the scripture. And so he's kind of going through that a little bit. And then we pick up in chapter 8. He kind of uh, not quite shifts gears, but gives a little more um, specific uh, vision to Ezekiel uh, that we'll see today. Chapter 8, verse 1. It came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. And so, uh, this is the second reference of time uh, relative to, well, since chapter 1. And so, this would be about a year and a half after the vision that we read about in chapter 1 when God first called Ezekiel uh, to be a prophet. And so, uh, so he's been there about a year and a half. Notice that. Number two, notice that the elders of Judah are sitting before him. Well, that tells us a couple of things. Number one, we have such a thing as the elders of Judah. So there's still a little bit of this um, maybe hierarchy within the religious framework of the captives, okay, that we could call some of them elders, right? It's not that, they're, that anybody's more or less important. Just notice that there's some that, and again, I, whenever I think of like authority structures, whether it's in the church or, or whatever, right, these aren't levels of importance. These are really levels of responsibility. So when I see the elders of Judah, I'm thinking these are people that should know better. That's how I'm calling them. I'm not calling them more important than the non-elders. I'm calling them people that should know better. People that have been maybe a little bit seasoned in their Judaism. Okay? So number one, the elders have come before Ezekiel. And number two, they come before Ezekiel. Like they seem to acknowledge that Ezekiel might be a prophet. Fair enough? So we get that from uh, this, first, this first verse. And then finally we see that the hand of the Lord God is upon Ezekiel. Now if you've uh, followed with us since chapter 1, you know that... Um, some pretty weird things seem to be happening to Ezekiel. And so, hang on. Then I looked, he said, and there was a likeness, like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward, fire. And from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. And so, it's kind of weird. Would you say it's kind of weird? Anybody seen that lately? Anybody who's like on fire from the waist down, right? You know, if I saw one of you guys on fire from the waist down, I don't think I'd say, you know, there appeared to me a person who appeared to be on fire, right? So he's saying this rather calmly, so we'll just assume this is a, a vision type thing. You know, some different commentators, some say this is God, some say this is God himself, some say this is Jesus Christ incarnate, some say this is uh, some kind of angel. The truth is, it really doesn't matter. It's, he's, first of all, he says, uh, the hand of God was upon me there. So this is either God or, you know, some representation of, basically, this is a work of God, we can say that, okay? Uh, if not, God himself. And so... We'll say God appears to him in this way. And he stretched out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my hair 
And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the door of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the, visions that, like the vision that I, had, that I saw in the plain. Now, you've got to keep in mind when a prophet is writing... The lines often seem blurry about, and we, we saw this pretty clearly in chapter 1, the lines seem a little bit blurry. Is this a vision or is this like really happening, right? You remember when, um, I think when Peter got released from prison, remember this? In the book of Acts, Peter gets released from prison and, and all the while he's thinking it's like some, it's like some vision and... Uh, the angel leads him out of prison out into the middle of the street and he's still thinking it's like a vision and then all of a sudden he wakes up and he realizes he's actually in the middle of the street, right? And so it's, it stands to reason. I mean, it's consistent throughout the Bible that sometimes these things are blurry. So I say that only to say, don't get caught up in the theology of, now did he really go to, you know, don't worry about that. Did they really grab him by the hair? Man, that must have hurt. Don't get hung up on that, okay? So there's a vision and most commentators would say it's a vision like he literally has probably stayed in Babylon right because there's a little bit of a later reference where he's talking to these elders that are before him but anyway all that to say he gets a vision of what appears to be God taking him to Jerusalem so he's going to see in a vision what is in Jerusalem and he goes to the door of the north gate of the inner court of the temple. And there's, this, there's an image of jealousy there which provokes to jealousy. Now, remember we said that God is like a spouse, with a, a husband with an adulterous wife. And uh, so God might be referred to as jealous. And there's an image there which is probably some pagan object. Many people say that Manasseh, uh, King Manasseh uh, in, the, in Judah's history actually put this uh, obscene pagan object right in the middle of the temple. First of all, you've got to say, that's amazing in itself. And then uh, Josiah would have later uh, destroyed that because he was a good king and then probably one of uh, the kings after Josiah maybe put it back up there. That's what most people say. So what you have, you have Ezekiel seeing this vision like he's actually being carried to um, Jerusalem, to the temple. There's an image of jealousy there which is like this combination of paganism and the Jewish, the worship of the Jewish religion all there mixed together and the glory of the God of Israel is there. I want you to notice this. The glory of the God of Israel was there. Punchline. Spoiler alert. The glory of the God of Israel is going to depart from the temple in the next three chapters. And that's why I wanted to get to chapter 10 because the glory of the God of Israel departs in chapter 10. So we'll talk about that through the day. That's the spoiler alert, right? Okay? So the glory of the God of Israel was there in verse 4. And then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there north of the altar gate was the image of jealousy in the entrance. So now he kind of gets another angle at it. He's looking at it uh, by the north gate. He sees this image of jealousy. And furthermore, verse 6, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. And so this image of jealousy represents great abominations, according to the Lord, which the Jewish people had committed. They were literally bringing idolatry into the temple. Into the temple. Now here's what I want us to get our heads around. This is important for our day. They didn't, like, stop worshiping the God of the Jews, right? They just worshiped the God of the Jews and every other God they can get their hands on. You get it? Right? 
And again, sorry if it's awkward, but it's like they didn't like get rid of God as a, as a, as a husband. They just had 50 other girlfriends or boyfriends. They don't want to go there either. <laughs> right? 50 other boyfriends. Like Solomon. Right? You ever think about Solomon? I don't want to go off on Solomon, but Solomon really was instrumental in bringing this into their culture. Right? Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 1,000 women. Right? I'm going to go out on a limb and say he didn't know all their names. Right? Thousand women. You ever wonder, like, the Song of Solomon? We always ask this. This is, this is what theologians talk about in our house. <laughs> Which wife was it that he wrote the, song of, the book of Solomon, the, the, the Song of Solomon? Which wife is in her, in, is, you know, a thousand wives, right? So imagine God, God, God Almighty, God the creator of heaven and earth and everything beyond what we can see. God who sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for me, that I would have the audacity to worship him and other gods, right? That's audacity. That is, I mean, to say that's offensive is like the ultimate understatement. And that's what they were doing. Here's the take-home message for us. We don't, you know, I've said this before, we don't put idols on our fireplace mantles. But we need to be super diligent that we don't bring idols into our hearts. Right? Like I worship God and something else. Like I worship God and my possessions. Like I worship God and even another human being. Like I worship God and, 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 and. God has a, has a place in our lives as Christians that he deserves to have, and he deserves to have it exclusively. And so frankly, I know it's awkward, but the, the, the metaphor of adultery is really the best metaphor that we can get our heads, heads around. And so, God deserves exclusive worship in our hearts. That's the bottom line. And that's what they were violating. They were violating it badly. He says, they do these things to, quote, make me go far away from my sanctuary. And here's what we're going to talk about today as we talk about the glory of the Lord departing. You notice, again, I'm talking about relationships, right? You ever notice that somehow... God is omnipresent, right? Is that a, like a, you know, is that in your theology books? God is omnipresent. God is everywhere, right? But God's glory, at least as it's sort of depicted in the scriptures, seems to be at certain places. Does that make sense? In the Old Testament, to the Jewish mindset, you go in the Holy of Holies, number one, the high priest is the only one that could go in there and only once a year on the Day of Atonement because the Ark of the Covenant was there. And that Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. And you might say, God's everywhere. Yes, he is. But somehow there was something about that Ark of the Covenant, right? So much so that uh, you touch it and you die, right? You, there was... Um, when they got it back from the Philistines, right? Long story, but Philistines captured it. The presence of God was there in that ark, right? Every, and after a while, the Philistines realized, we don't want that thing in our camp, right? They sent it back to the Jewish people. Jewish people get it. Some less than insightful Jewish people say, cool. They lift the lid on it, right? That's a bad idea, right? So much holiness they're depicted in the presence of God that I forget how many thousand of them died that day, right? But there's something about the glory of God, the presence of God that 
is beyond the, the fact that God is everywhere, okay? If you'll grant me that, I, you could probably poke theological holes in it, but just don't do that. Catch the heart of what, what I'm saying, what the heart of, I think, what God is teaching. There was, there was the, the, when the Jewish people were going through the desert, right? There was the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. That was a, that was a representation. That was a, that was a, a, a concept of the presence of God there, the glory of God, right? And so now what we're going to see is the glory of God is going to depart from the temple. I think of it like this. Again, we're talking about relationships. You ever notice, like, and I've been kind of, I'm, I'm entertained a little bit by these, uh, when you see the heads of state uh, meet one another, right? Like you have uh, somebody go to Saudi Arabia or somebody else go to... Uh, Iran or wherever, right? You see these pictures, these heads of state, right? And like, I guess I can talk about things out loud, right? Like, like, because it's not this is politically balanced. I think um, our society is is consumed with whether or not a president is supposed to shake hands with uh, is it the Saudi uh, prince? Are you supposed to fist bump him or shake hands with him, right? And so we're analyzing whether or not, you know, and I'm thinking, do those guys have what we'd call fellowship? Right? Probably not. Right? If, uh, and yet, I hope if you're married today and you live in the same home, you have presence, but you also have presence. Does that make sense? Like you have fellowship, right? There's some people that might come to our house, right? And you're like, man, I hope, you know, you kind of, none of you guys, by the way, you know, but, uh, you know, before they come, like you give the, ki- you give the younger kids, well, maybe the older kids, you give them a little, little talk, like, don't say this, don't do that. Like, put on your best behavior, right? Don't put your elbows on the table. And you got to act like that, right? Is that fellowship? No. Right? My grandkids were over this weekend, right? And one of them, there's one of them, little three-year-old. She thinks it's fun to just, like, she walks past you, and she'll just whack you, right? That's fun. Is that fellowship? Now, that's fellowship, right? And she, or she does this, she says, she, she flicks you, Right? And her mother's told her that I think I'm the only person she can flick, right? And she flicks Nate quite a bit. But, um, so that's fellowship, right? They bounce on you. That's fellowship, right? They burp at the table. That's fellowship, right? There's a difference between fellowship. You can, my point is, you can be in the same room with somebody and not have fellowship. Sadly, you can be in the same room with your spouse and not have fellowship right? It's possible. It's no good. It's awkward. It's beyond awkward. Imagine having that with God. And none of us want that. And God certainly doesn't want that. That's why God sent his son to die on a cross to take away all the, basically the curse of sin, the curse of our sin, to restore fellowship. So we have God's presence, what we want is also his fellowship. And it's depicted, at least in these chapters, I think of it as the glory of God is really depicted as the fellowship of God, the, 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 the intimate presence of God. Is that fair? Okay. So, verse 7. So he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. So he says, hey, I see, you see some of this stuff? It gets worse. Then he said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was the door. Verse 9. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and I saw there. Listen to this. Every sort of creeping thing, abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around the walls. Verse 10. So you notice this? I'm emphasizing this. Every sort of creeping thing, all the idols of the house of Israel, all around the walls. You ever notice anything about idolatry? It's insatiable. 
It's insatiable. You ever tried to say, I've got this temptation to, um, well, let's make it, we've had enough awkward talk, let's just make it something ridiculous, right? I've got this, I've got this, um, is anybody here addicted to golf? Okay, good. We can beat on golfers. Can we beat on golfers? All right. So, I mean, if you play golf, that's okay. I'm not talking about playing. I'm just talking about being addicted. So let's say you're, you're struggling with whether or not golf should be an idol in my life. Okay? Is that fair? So you're like, you go to a sporting goods store, and you see a new putter, right? You've seen guys like this. Have you seen guys like this? Their life will not be the same once they get that new putter. Right? You know the guy, right? And by the way, this applies to everything. He gets the putter. What do you think is going to happen once he gets that putter? Needs a new, what'd you say? Needs a new driver. Any moron knows he needs a new driver, right? Once he gets that driver, what's his life going to be? Perfect, right? We left fishing alone, by the way. <laughs> we left fishing alone because I, I, I thought I'd be safe with golfers. I might not be safe with fishermen, right? What's the point? Idolatry. Now, if we're talking about idolatry, it's insatiable. Have you ever, and, and this between you and the Lord, have you ever had that time where there's like this overwhelming temptation and you have this sense like, you know, if I go ahead and give in to this temptation just a little bit, I bet it'll go away and I bet Satan will leave me alone. We try this. We've all tried this in various degrees, I'm going to say. I bet if I just give in to that thing, I bet if I... I bet if I just, just this once, eat that bowl of ice cream, the temptation for the second one will just go away. I'll be satisfied. Right? Every sort of creeping thing, all the idols of the house of God, of Israel, portrayed all around the walls. Idolatry is insatiable. Don't make deals with the enemy of your soul. Don't make deals to try to negotiate your way to a little less temptation. James tells us, flee the devil. Or, I'm sorry, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Simple as that. Don't make a deal with the devil. I've seen that happen so many times and it's catastrophic. Don't make a deal with the devil. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 11. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. So the incense was all their uh, pagan idol worship practices. And then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols? For they say... Thus, the, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And so notice, again here, the 70 elders are doing this. So church leaders are no more exempt than anyone else to fall into temptation. Can I tell you this? Church leaders are no more exempt than anyone else to fall into temptation. We must all keep our guards up. We must all keep our guards up. We must all, if, if you struggle with alcohol, drive home some route that doesn't take you past your favorite liquor store. Right? Whatever the struggle is, there are, there are wise safeguards. I mean, temptation is real. There are wise safeguards we can put in our midst, right? to help us guard against it. That's just, that's just wisdom. 
And so uh, church leaders are not exempt any more than anyone else. Notice also, I want to just highlight this. This guy, Jezaniah, was the son of Shaphan. He's in the midst of all this. Well, you may or may not recall this, but Shaphan was one of the guys who faithfully served during the days of Josiah. You remember during the days of Josiah, they're cleaning out the temple, and this priest named Hilkiah finds a copy of the Old Testament uh, scripture, and he's like, hey, I found a book. And he takes it to Shaphan. Shaphan is the guy who takes it to Josiah. Shaphan is a godly man serving alongside Josiah during his kingdom, during his reign. This, this guy, Shaphan, by all indications, was a very godly man. So, being an elder doesn't exempt you from temptation, right? Having a godly father doesn't exempt you from temptation. This guy, Jezaniah, is the son of Shaphan. He's in the midst of all this stuff. So having a godly heritage doesn't necessarily exempt you from temptation. And notice this, what do they say? These guys are all sitting around. These are all Jewish elders, by the way. They should have been well-schooled in the scriptures. And they say, the Lord does not see us. So they're making statements about the nature of God. Where do we get the knowledge to make statements about the nature of God? From where? Where do we get it? From the newspaper? No. From our mama? No. From the scripture? Yeah. Right? What verse says, the Lord does not see us? There's no verse that says that, right? What are these guys doing? They're rewriting the scripture. They're rewriting the nature of God, right? So keep this in mind now. These people have become adulterous in their relationship with God. They've denied his, his glory being there in the temple, right? They've, they brought in pagan idol worship along with the service of God, the, re the, the reverence for God. And church leaders aren't exempt. Having a godly heritage is not exempt. And they've departed from any acknowledgement of the Word of God. It's almost like they think, yeah, there's the Bible, but that part doesn't apply to us. So the part that applies to us is, you know, the Lord does not see us, for the Lord has forsaken the land. There's a thing that I find whenever I or anybody else wrestles with temptation is part of the piece of the temptation goes like this, something like this. I know there's that scripture that says, well, let's go back to my, the, the putter and the driver analogy, okay? I know there's that scripture that says, thou shalt not covet. But Bob over here, he's got that putter like mine. Like I, I mean, like I want. He's got the putter like I want. And if I got that putter, I could play as well as him. And I know the Bible says don't covet, and I know that, you know, I'm not supposed to be obsessed with this thing, but I don't think God understands my situation. I don't think God, I, I know it says that, but I don't think that part really is for me. That part is for Bob. Matter of fact, he's got my putter. Right? We think somehow that this applies to us if we feel like it applies to us. Or if we want it to apply to us. Or the parts that we like apply to us. And the parts that might bring conviction, that applies to somebody else. Can I tell you, that's a very, very common trap. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. These people, schooled in the Jewish religion and no doubt in the, in the, in the scriptures, had the audacity to say the Lord does not see us, fundamentally denying the scripture. Verse 13, and he said to me, God now. And he said to me, turn again. You'll see greater abominations than they are doing. So he brought me into the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. So Tammuz 
was one of their idols. Legend had it that Tammuz was a fertility god, and when they worshipped Tammuz, it was with all kinds of just vile practices that are not worth mentioning. Tammuz was a, was a god whose wife was named Ishtar, another false god. And they believed that in the seasons of the year, in the fall, Tammuz was supposedly killed by a wild boar. And Ishtar, uh, his wife, would wail so much that she would bring Tammuz back from the dead. And they tied this into the seasons. And so in the fall, right, leaves fall off the, the trees, uh, vegetation seems to die. That's because Tammuz died, right? But when spring came around, they could pray like Ishtar and they could maybe raise Tammuz up from the dead and we got springtime. So they were praying for sort of their fertility. It was all a weird combination of stuff. They're praying and they're weeping for Tammuz to um, enhance their fertility and to bring, uh, to bring life back in the natural world. Do we need to worry about Tammuz? No. no. They were. Should they have known better? Yes, yes absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah. Just crazy stuff. You know, when you start to neglect the Lord, you start to write your own theology, you start to say things like, God doesn't see us, or like, you know, that verse doesn't apply to me. You know what you do? Catch this now. You start to fill in the gaps with your own bizarre theology. And I've heard some crazy ones. I've heard some crazy ones, right? And, and we got to be careful. I mean, I don't want to make, uh, make light of them. I don't want to make light of them. But if you listen closely, you'll hear people articulate, and you, I mean, you've got to be sensitive about it, right? I had one, frankly, I hope I can say this. I had one person tell me um, a couple weeks ago, actually, that when you see a cardinal, that's a dead person trying to talk to you. This person claimed, claimed Christianity, right? And I think honestly, it was just, and it's like I can't mock that, right? I, I, I have to, I, I'm obligated as a, as a guy who's supposed to be a pastor to redirect that a little bit, right? But can I tell you something? You know what a cardinal is? It's a beautiful red bird. Created by God. Right? By the way, the bright red cardinal, guess what kind of bird that is? Male. The muddy looking cardinal, sorry ladies, the muddy looking cardinal is a what? Female. The natural world testifies to the glory of God. Right? Now, doesn't matter what that muddy bird what kind of bird that muddy bird identifies as? That muddy bird's female. Right? And you can look. There's two kinds of cardinals. The Bible says God made them male and female. Right? Why do I not rewrite that theology? Because it's already been written. It's already been written. I don't need to rewrite it. I don't need to rewrite it to be uh, contemporary, uh, you know, contemporarily hip, right? I don't, I mean, I'm not running for public office, just killed my chances of ever doing that, right? That's fine. I don't need to rewrite theology. God did a good job of it already. So I don't need to rewrite the nature of God or his creation or anything else like that. So I don't need to come up with whatever Tammuz did and whatever Ishtar did to come up with some kind of story that redefines or re-explains some aspect of creation. God already did it. 
Verse 15. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you're, you, you will see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. Now this may seem like a little thing, but again, these are 24 elders. Uh, we see uh, it's referenced in chapter 9, verse 6, that these are elders. So again, these are people that should know better. And they were facing the sun in the east, and as a result of that, turned their backs on the temple. Now you might think, what's the big deal with that? Well, that was a, that was a pretty big affront uh, to God, to turn your back on the temple and instead worship the sun. Um, if, if you go back, you don't have to turn back there if you don't want, but Second Chronicles chapter 6, when Solomon built this temple and he offered this prayer of dedication... He went through this whole thing about, hey, when, you know, when this happens and we come to this temple and we worship you, you know, please hear our prayer and, and all of that sort of thing. One of the things he said uh, in this prayer, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 39, I'm sorry, verse 36 to 39, he says, when they, meaning the Jewish people, when they sin against you, God, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy... And they take them captive to a land far or near. Do you think Solomon's prophesying here? It would appear so. I mean, he's praying, but he also has some sort of insight that this might happen to the Jewish people, and it's exactly what did, in fact, happen to the Jewish people. So he says, when, when they sin and you become angry with them and deliver them to an enemy and take them to a captive land like Babylon, yet when they come to themselves in that land where they were carried captive, and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned, we have done wrong, and we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been carried captive, and pray toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and toward the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And so interestingly, Solomon, in his prayer of dedication for the temple, he said, hey, if by chance our people become so wicked that you carry them off captive to a foreign land, and then if they happen to repent while they're in that foreign land, when they pray and they turn towards you, toward this temple, then hear from them and forgive them and restore them. It's like Solomon already laid out the script. You remember when David, uh, Daniel is in Babylon? What's the one story you know from Daniel as a, as a kid in Sunday school class? Daniel and the lion's den, right? How did Daniel get in the lion's den anyway, right? Well, a bunch of leaders, guys that should know better, came to the king they wanted to bust Daniel. They were jealous of him. They came to the king and they said, Hey, king, let's make a law that nobody can, can bow down or pray or worship to anybody but you for the next, I think it was 30 days. The king's like, Sure, that sounds like a good idea. Didn't really think through it. What's Daniel going to do? He goes and he kneels down in his room and the, and the scripture says, He opened the windows toward Jerusalem. Where's he at? He's in Babylon, just like Ezekiel is. He opens toward Jerusalem, right? Because that's what Solomon said in his prayer. Hey, when we do this, let's, let's do this this way, right? He's giving honor. I mean, he's not doing it because Solomon said this is what you do and it was like some kind of formula. No, he's giving honor to the temple. He's giving honor to the God of the temple, the God of Jerusalem, the God of the Jews, and so what are these people doing? They're worshiping the sun, the creation, rather than the creator, right? And turning their back on God. In the New Testament, Paul condemns this. He says, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, Therefore, God gave also them, this is when he's, Paul's condemnation of sinful man, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator 
who is blessed forever. Amen. Right? So we don't worship the creation. We love the creation. We appreciate the creation. We acknowledge the creation because it points to God. But we worship the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We don't worship the creation. Verse 17, and he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they've committed here? For they have filled the land with violence, and they have returned to provide, provoke me for, to anger. Indeed, they put, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will also act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So judgment's coming. Judgment's coming to uh, the, the people of Judah, uh, specifically uh, Jerusalem and the Jewish people that were there. Again, this is, this is written prior to the final demise of, of Jerusalem and its people. And so God is giving this as a warning that judgment is coming. Chapter 9. Verse 1, then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, let those who have charge over the city draw near and with it, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with, its, with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a rider's ink horn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. And so here we see. God calls for six men. These are more likely angels with man's appearance. And they appear to have jurisdiction over, over Jerusalem. He says, uh, let those who have charge over the city. Uh, it appears that they have uh, jurisdiction over there. In Daniel chapter 10, if you're curious, there's a reference um, in Daniel's prophecy that there are, there are angelic beings that sort of have jurisdiction over a certain area, right? And so that's consistent. And so there's additionally another, another one. Some say this was Jesus himself. Uh, clothed in linen with a rider's ink horn. And um, so they're going to carry out this task. Verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. Can you notice this? We've been talking about the glory of God. God's presence is everywhere, but God's glory, there's something special about God's glory. God's glory was there uh, by the cherub, by the, in the temple, by the Holy of Holies. And now it's at the threshold. What do you do when you're at the threshold? You're either coming in or you're going out, right? The glory of God is now at the threshold. What do you think it's doing? You think it's coming in or going out? It's on its way out. Verse 3, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the rider's ink horn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry all over the abominations that are done within it. And so, again, there's a remnant of people here that we're talking about. And I like this. This is the third week in a row now we've talked about a remnant of people in the midst of the judgment that's about to come. Okay? Uh, he's mentioned it in the last, last few chapters. And the idea is, whenever judgment comes upon a land or a group of people, there's always opportunity for each and every one of us, I believe, according to the, the free choice of man, to choose to be part of the remnant, the remnant that is spared. Okay? What happened um, before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? What did he tell Lot? Get out of here. Right? And Lot wasn't exactly stellar in his discipleship. Right? But he was a child of God. So he and his daughters got out of there. Right? What did God do? In my mind, there are two times in the Old Testament where, God's, where, the, where the wrath of God comes down and brings destruction. Sodom and Gomorrah. Anybody got to guess what the other one might have been? The Great Flood. The Great Flood. What happened prior to the Great Flood? There was a way of escape for the faithful remnant. Noah and his sons. Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives. Right? And so there's always this pattern 
through the scripture, when judgment comes, God's remnant has a way out prior. Now, is that, a, is that cop-out theology? You can call it that. I think it's just consistent scripture, right? And that's why, personally, I believe, I believe the great tribulation is coming upon planet Earth. It would seem like potentially pretty soon. I, but I'm sure people thought that many generations over throughout history, right? But what I do believe from Scripture, and I think it teaches it throughout Scripture, we went through it in Thessalonians, all that, is that prior to the Great Tribulation, God's going to do just like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, just like he did with the Great Flood, and we call it the rapture of the church, right? Prior to the Great Tribulation, Bible says in the twinkling of an eye, like that, right? We're out of here. If you're fuzzy on that, I encourage you to go back and listen to the recordings of First and Second Thessalonians. But that's the heart of God. There's always, you know, judgment comes. Judgment's not like God, like, just randomly judging people. God judges the guilty. And he gives opportunity for repentance to each and every person. For God so loved the world, the world, and everybody in it, that he gave his only begotten son, that only a few, well, certain ones, special ones, the elders, no, whosoever, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's available to whosoever. So if you fall into the category of whosoever, that's available to you before you die. Period. Period. And there's a, there's a remnant that's always discussed. And so what God is going through here, he's basically calling these angels. Hey, I want you to put a mark on, on all the faithful remnant. And then everybody else is going to be judged. And so they, got a, they get a mark on their forehead. There's verse 4. Go through the midst of the, city of, of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem. Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. So the remnant that is not participating in all this, mark them. You know, we also have a mark. Did you know that? It's not the mark of the beast, by the way. Don't get confused with the mark of the beast. But we have a mark. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. So the seal in the ancient world, like if a, it was like a signature, right? The king would have like, you know, a wax seal. And if the king, and you know, only the king has it, right? And so uh, usually on his signet ring or something like that. And, you know, you melt the wax. And if, the king, if it's a kingly document, instead of saying, whereas, 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 which we do on our documents, which... Makes no sense. But anyway, they just cut to the point. They let the king seal it, right? And we've got in the same kind of, we've got in the same sense, we have the seal of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, what does that mean? It means he's the, he's the, the, like the, the earnest money, right? When you buy a house, you make an offer on the house, you give them earnest money, right? What's the earnest money say? I mean, you talk to anybody, I mean, talk to a realtor. Earnest money, really doesn't mean anything, right? But what it is, it's, it's the buyer's way of saying, I'm serious and I'm going to follow through. I'm going to close the deal. You know, if a buyer wants to make a serious offer, the buyer makes a serious earnest money payment, right? I mean, it all washes out in the end, but it's, it's the buyer's way of saying, I'm going to close the deal, right? What's the Holy Spirit of promise given to us? The mark that we have? It's twofold. Number one, it's a mark that we are owned by God. We are owned by God. The Holy Spirit has sealed us, and we are owned by God. Number two, he's going to close the deal. Amen? Are we thankful for that? He's going to close the deal. Because we're sort of in that... Um, between purchase agreement and closing phase here on planet Earth. This is our, like our life, right? Not to use a real estate analogy, right? But we are, we are confident. We have the confidence because of the Holy Spirit in our lives that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. 
That's a beautiful thing. And so these guys, they've got a mark as well. They're going to they're gonna avoid judgment because of it. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any, uh, any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain, go out. And they went out and killed in the city. So tremendous killing to those who don't have the mark. Verse 8, and so it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone and I fell on my face and cried out and said, ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great and the land is full of bloodshed and the city full of perversity. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, also my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense the deeds on their own heads. Just then the man clothed with linen, who had the inkhorn at his side, reported back and said, I've done as you commanded me. And so the point in these last few verses is just catch the heart of Ezekiel, right? When judgment comes, what's the heart of a godly person say? Hey, too bad, so sad for you. You should have listened. Told you so. Does he say that? No. He's got tremendous compassion, right? And can I say this? We live in a day where I believe stuff is going on that God just can't, cannot ignore. As graciously as I can say it, stuff is going on in our society that God cannot ignore. And if stuff happens in our lifetime, we need to be very compassionate towards the unbelieving people in our society. We as Christians, I think, have failed in this. We've, we've, we've largely kind of had a little bit of an us and them thing going, right? Like we're in and you're out. We're holy and you're heathen. And frankly, there's no place for that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're sinners saved by grace. Praise God. We are blessed by the grace of God, and we don't deserve any of it, any of it. And so when judgment comes, we need to be compassionate. Chapter 10, I promise I'm going to read very briefly. And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of the throne. Then he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. And so the reason we're reading through this briefly is he kind of has, he kind of brings together really this judgment that's coming with some of the imagery we saw of the glory of God in chapter one, right? Or the, the, the visions of God, he called it there in chapter one. And just notice also when he says coals of fire, coals of fire speak of judgment. Verse 3, now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the, of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. God's glory is on his way out. I want you to see that. And he pauses over the temple, over, over the threshold. You got to wonder what that's all about. It's almost like maybe there's a pause waiting for repentance. God is described in the scripture as long-suffering, right? Patient with us, waiting for us to repent. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. Verse 5, And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. And then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, that he went in and stood beside the wheels. And the cherubim stretched out his hand from among the cherubim, the cherubim stretched out his hand from among the cherubim at, to the fire that was among the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen who took it and went out. Then the cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. 
And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub, another wheel by each other cherub, and the wheels appeared to have the color of a barrel stone. As for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. We read that in chapter 1. When they went, they went toward any of four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. They followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went. And their whole body, with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that the four had were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called in my, in my hearing, wheel. Each one had four faces. The first one face was the face of a cherub, the second the face of a man, the third the face of a lion, the fourth the face of an eagle. Verse 15. And the cherub were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river Chebar. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them, and when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still, and when one was lifted up, the other was lifted up, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. And so, this is why I'm reading this rather quickly, because it's, it's essentially, uh, a lot of it's a, a retelling of what he saw in, verse, in chapter 1. But here's what I want us to get to, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door at the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chebar, back in chapter 1, and I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings, like, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings, and the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Chebar, their appearance, and their persons. They each went straight forward. So, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple of Jerusalem. You know, once the glory of the Lord departs from a place, it's like a shell. It's like an empty shell, right? Is this a cool place because it's a cool place? Or is this a cool place because the presence of God is here? The fellowship of God is here. The glory of God is here. That's what we want. We don't want some kind of slick system. We don't want me to razzle-dazzle or entertain anybody. We don't want, you know, anything other than the presence of God to be here, to minister as only He can do by the Holy Spirit, to teach as only He can do through my crazy words, through the reading of the, of the Word of God. That's the glory of God. Having said that, we've got to keep in mind, God is fully gracious and He's fully just. He cannot overlook sin. In our lives, that sin has been dealt with, right? By the blood of Jesus. And we can be thankful for that. The price has been paid. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who's the down payment for what Jesus will ultimately accomplish. But for us, if I could appeal to any of us, read the Bible daily. Read it, know it, own it, own it, consume it. Make it a part of who you are. So much so that when somebody says something about a cardinal is a, is a person talking to you, there's something, I mean, you don't need to know chapter and verse, right? There's, I don't know the verse that says a cardinal is a cardinal, right? But you, something, in your, something in your spirit should say, that doesn't set right with what I've, what I've read over the years through the scriptures, right? We need to know the word, just straight up. We need to know the Bible. We need to own it. We need to live it. It needs to be our standard. It is living and, living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and we need to treat it like that. It's the Word of God. And we need to not think we're exempt from any aspect of this truth in any way. We've been bought by God. The price was Jesus. 
He gives us his word. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He's laid it all out. It's all there. And it's not for a religious exercise. It's for an intimate relationship with the glory of none other than God Almighty. Amazing that he would do that. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy and that you desire to not make us religious puppets, but to make us your children, that you would have fellowship with us, that we would have an ongoing, walking, talking relationship with you by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the direction of your word. So Lord, we ask today that as only you can do, would you please enhance that relationship? Lord, we know on earth, just in terms of earthly relationships, we know what, we know what fellowship is like. We know what intimate relationships are like. We also know what weird, awkward relationships are like. We've all experienced all of those. But Lord, ultimately, we want to have an intimate fellowship with you. And so we ask that you would do that work in our hearts and we would respond to your love accordingly. Help our lives to bring glory and honor to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.